theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaquia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good afternoon, Amy. Well, good afternoon, Joy. How are you today? I'm good. I don't know if it's good morning, good afternoon, good night, because we're going to talk to someone that's out of the country. <laughs> exactly. The time difference. Yes, yes. So the beautiful thing about podcasts, and I guess that's one way we have really taken advantage of the pandemic, is that we can talk and reach people all over the world. That's been a blessing in disguise. I've appreciated having the opportunity to talk to people in so many different areas of education and across the world. Let me ask you this. What has been your experience with traveling abroad or experiential learning in other countries? I have most of my experience with experiential learning is through my own children. So I have two young adults. My daughter had an experience very different than my son. She went to Guatemala and she went on a mission trip. And what she saw and experienced was transformative in a very different way from my son who went on an excursion to Europe. And even though it was a school experience, it was more educational, fulfilling. And, you know, so for both of them, it was very transformative, but in very different ways. So I have that experience with them. And then I was a host for three college students, one from Colombia, one from Nepal, and one from Saudi Arabia. You have much more experience with travel abroad education than I do. So I'm really interested in learning more and how that applies to us as educators, future college students to college students now, and perhaps some professors might be interested in getting involved in some of these opportunities. Right. And just imagine you've gone to Germany how many times And what was that experience like with you? And how did it transform you and inform you? Exactly. So my husband's company is based in Germany. And it's fascinating to talk about their educational system because they have different pathways that students can take and internships and opportunities to really hone their crafts before they're even out of the secondary school. Yes, I want to take advantage of some travel experiences as well. We are going to talk to Dr. Jeremy Doty, who is an international education expert. 
who now leads all study abroad programs for the University Studies Abroad Consortium, FUSAC is what you might hear him say, in England. Like many international educators, he wears several hats. As a resident director with USAC, he designs academic programs, teaches, and facilitates cultural activities. He answers the emergency phone, manages the budget, and interfaces with UK regulators. He posts on Instagram and produces YouTube videos and engages with university partners like us. He researches and publishes on the challenges of international service learning programs. And so I'm going to ask him a few questions about that research. Jeremy received his PhD in higher education administration from Bowling Green State University. And originally from the U.S., he has studied abroad twice in Germany and has worked in the Ukraine and South Africa. And we're going to learn more about you today. Dr. Jeremy Doty, welcome to our show. Hi, Dr. Amy. Hi, Dr. Joy. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Hi. Is it okay if I call you Jeremy or Dr. Jeremy? (laughs) (laughs) Just call me Jeremy. That's perfectly fine. How are you? What time is it there? Yeah, greetings from London. It is about 6 o'clock p.m. over here, so I'm joining you in the evening. Well, Well, I'm so glad we could take this opportunity, and before you came on, Amy and I were just talking about some of the privileges that we've received because of podcasts and COVID, blessing in disguise. We're able to talk to people like you. You're in London. So we have this opportunity. I know that the pandemic, and we thought we would, wouldn't be talking about the pandemic a year and a half later. Once upon a time, we said, let's not ask questions that, that date the podcast. But hey, we're a year and a half in. I think it's safe. <laughs> that we can actually continue to talk about this because it's had such a major impact on our lives, not just during the pandemic, but post-pandemic. One of my questions for you is how has your work been affected by the pandemic? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think back to March, 2020, when I had a group of roughly 70 students in England And as soon as we got news that the coronavirus started spreading throughout the United Kingdom and other European countries, USAC moved really, really quickly. And not only did we have to evacuate all of the students in the United Kingdom, but we had to evacuate roughly 1,500 students across all of our program sites. So we got all of the students back home so that they could go back to their home universities or back home. We thought we would be able to maybe run a few programs the following summer, maybe fall 2020, spring 2021, but really we've had to suspend the majority of our programs ever since that spring 2020 semester. Wow, I can't even imagine relocating so many students and educators How have you pivoted during this time? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So I think one of the exciting directions that USAC has taken is that we introduced virtual internships and online courses for our students. So one thing that's really important to USAC as an organization is our commitment to access, affordability, and academic rigor. So we thought, okay, students can't travel abroad, 
So let's have online courses taught by our amazing faculty members abroad. Let's introduce virtual internships. So let's collaborate with organizations abroad and allow students to grow professionally from the comfort of their own home. And we complemented these online courses and virtual internship opportunities with a series of asynchronous cultural workshops that we designed and then live career and professional development panel discussions. And to our surprise, ACPA or the American College Personnel Association actually awarded USAC the Outstanding International Education Initiative for these workshop and panel series. So we moved in a really, really good direction. And then as the COVID situation improved in some cultural contexts, we slowly began to reopen some of our program sites, but with extreme heightened attention to health, safety, and security. And you know, that time, time when some of our programs were suspended, it also gave us an opportunity to think a little bit more critically about how we wanted to adapt those programs in a post-COVID environment. So post-COVID, what do you think that you want to keep that you've implemented? What do you want to stay? One great thing about those virtual internships is it really helped us build more structure to our in-person internships, which will resume starting this fall. So because we have this gap of time where we could really play around with some new ideas, we enhanced the structure for our internship experience. So we designed new learning outcomes for those internships. We crafted assessments that aligned with those learning outcomes, and we started developing new grading rubrics to help us with this assessment. We even designed a 12-hour kind of mini course that students take alongside their virtual internship. Like a lot of educators, I'm a huge fan of John Dewey. And John Dewey has always said that experience is nothing without reflection. So we wanted to make sure that students were pairing their virtual internships with a fair amount of reflection. So we're actually going to keep that global internship seminar and any student that now does an in-person internship will navigate through it. You are speaking to a narrative researcher at heart who also <laughs> loves John Dewey and reflective practice. <laughs> so tell us about your narrative study. You examined international educators wellness. COVID-19 was part of that study, but really focusing on stressors or what else can you tell us about that study? Yeah, so I conducted this study in partnership with Dr. Carrie Klima, who's at Cal State Long Beach. And you're right, our research question was, what are the wellness stories of international educators who had to evacuate students from a study abroad program. It's something that I experienced myself. So I was really curious to learn more about it. So as part of this narrative study, we collected stories from six individuals who worked for a study abroad organization. Our participants cut across functional areas and they had different levels of experience in higher education as well. Plus, we were also very attentive to different demographic dimensions to ensure that our participants were representing a diverse group. 
With this group of six, with each participant, we conducted two hour-long interviews, and then we also had them write a short narrative about their lived experiences. In terms of our key findings, we identified two categories of variables that really affected our participants' overall wellness as they worked through this crisis. The first set of factors were organizational factors. So they were really attentive to the way that the crisis impacted the broader field of international education. There were a lot of communication issues within the particular organization that affected their wellness. And positively, they actually received a fair amount of support from their line managers. So not all of these factors were negative. Now, these organizational factors were balanced with job-related factors as well that affected their wellness. So their job responsibilities shifted dramatically throughout the crisis. A lot of them had to move from office-based work to home-based work. And then as we were concluding our research, they were returning back to the office. And then, of course, they had concerns about their job security and finances. So in the end, we found that these factors affected two key dimensions of their wellness. The first one was their mental and emotional wellness. So the crisis really created a lot of panic and uh, chaos within the organization. And they experienced several emotions like stress, anxiety. Some of them felt very overwhelmed. And even when they were working home, they felt this pressure to be productive. In terms of that social dimension, which is the other one um, we explored, but we found that our participants had a void from the in-person engagement that they really liked within their organization when they were working in an office. And that social void could not be adequately replicated in a virtual space, even if they had things like Zoom potlucks or Zoom social events. The study seems applicable across organizations. So many of us felt that social and emotional void. Yeah. So what are what might be some suggestions that your organization is taking into practice that maybe we can glean some knowledge from as well? Yeah, you're right. You know, the point of conducting this research study was to really show that COVID-19 and other crises like this can negatively affect the wellness of professionals like us. So what, what we recommend is that universities and other schools and other organizations have a responsibility to provide structures of support and offer holistic wellness resources to their employees, not just during the crisis, but before the crisis and after a crisis. So one idea that actually our participants came up with was forming a well-rounded wellness committee to think of programmatic initiatives that can be offered before, during, and after a crisis. And I think that forward-thinking model will really help organizations prepare for the next crisis because even though I don't want to say it, COVID-19 is not going to be the last crisis that we face. I agree. It's not going to be the last. And who's to say it's over as we're watching what CDC is saying now. And as you talk about these experiences, some were negative experiences that had impact. I do want to hear about a lot of the positive experience to shift because I think what we 
really need to know is what does these abroad experience offer us in our personal lives and how does it help us expand? Before you came on, Amy and I, we were talking about our experiences and I was sharing that my daughter, she had gone to a Catholic university and she had a very mission-oriented experience in Guatemala and seeing children live around garbage and eat out of the trash can and bring tools to the community was life-altering for her. And I think it attributed to her being the good teacher that she is now. She takes very special care of her students, make sure that they're fed and things like that. And on the other hand, my son, he had an abroad experience to Europe and still very life-altering for him. And as a result, he travels all over now in his career. So it really, really broadened their perspective. And I had the opportunity of hosting three college students, one from Nepal, one from Colombia, and one from Saudi Arabia. And our student, Ishab from Nepal, he actually experienced what you were talking about, some of the, your research. They had the earthquake if you recall, years back in Nepal, and for two weeks, he couldn't hear from his parents. And in that two weeks, he had a mental breakdown. I don't necessarily think that we were equipped to deal with that. And you talk about that in your research and the, the things that they go through and how we need to be attuned and pay attention and be able to recognize those things because it happens when you're studying abroad. So if you could talk more about that, and then let's shift to the benefits, because there's more benefits <laughs> than some of these situations that we're talking about. Yeah, you're right. You know, one of the reasons why I'm such a passionate international educator is because I also benefited from some of these experiences myself. I had my first study abroad experience in Germany as a high school student, and that put me on the trajectory that I followed ever since I was a 17 year old. So I majored in German and international studies and that afforded me another opportunity to study abroad in Germany as an undergraduate student. I wanted more, I wanted a really immersive experience after I finished undergrad. So I was a Peace Corps volunteer and I lived and worked in Ukraine for about two years. So because I've benefited so much from these global experiences, I want to create a space for students from all different backgrounds to have these experiences as well. My father started out as a motorcycle mechanic. My mom worked in a paper factory. So I'm a first generation student. And as I navigated through these global experiences, I didn't get so much support in terms of how it all worked from my family. They did support my decision to study abroad, but they couldn't help me out with the application process or a lot of those logistical questions that we face when we go abroad. So I know, I know it can be a really challenging experience for students, but the positive impacts of a global experience are, make it completely worth it. So we have to understand that when we study abroad, we're able to enhance our understanding of a particular topic or of our field of study. So there's that academic development. Of course, when we merge high impact practices like study abroad with an internship, students gain professional skills that employers in graduate schools are looking for. So we see that professional development as well. 
And of course, then from an intrapersonal perspective, we're understanding the world in different ways. And we're challenging some of our preconceived notions about the world, which is really exciting. And then one thing that I see a lot with my students here in England is that interpersonal development. So our students come here and they want to make a lot of friends. And not only do they form new relationships with community members here in the United Kingdom, but they're able to make a lot of rich connections with students from all over the world. Can you tell us more about who are the participants? I'm really interested in it from an equity standpoint as well, because for my daughter, her trip was included in tuition. And for my son, we had to do some fundraising. (laughs) (laughs) Interested, who are these participants? Yeah, that's an important question. So in terms of USAC, we work as a consortium of universities. So we have 35 core universities that we partner with, but we welcome students from hundreds of universities across the United States. And we offer them global opportunities across 50 programs in 26 different countries. But I think your question is really important because if we take a step back, let's take a broader look at the international education landscape. So for this data, there's an organization called the Institute of International Education that annually produces data about who in the United States is studying abroad. And this is primarily at the university level. So out of the roughly 350,000 U.S. students who studied abroad during the 2019-2020 academic year, 69% of those students identified as white. It's very clear that more work needs to be done to increase participation of students of color. Now, I took a look also at USAC, and I wanted to know who was coming to England to see if the student population that I work with aligned with that data. So again, during the 2019-2020 academic year, 72% of my students identified as white, and then 23% identified as a person of color. Five students didn't report. Again, more work needs to be done. And the good thing is an organization like USAC is taking important steps in order to create more access and to diversify its population of students. What I like to do in this space is I like to think about diversity in a very holistic sense. So in addition to students of color, let's think about LGBTQ plus students, undocumented students, students with disabilities, non-traditionally aged students, and first-generation students. For example, in this past semester, I collaborated with my colleagues to offer workshops and bolster our resources specifically for LGBTQ plus students and first-generation students, just because I myself identify with both of those categories. And it's great to see that my colleagues in USAC are doing similar work targeted at other populations to increase access for them. I want to speak a little bit to the diversity when you were talking about the non-traditional age students, because Governor State University really has a large population. And I wonder about your organization or other organizations like yours who might offer opportunities for adult owners who have families or other obligations. What would you suggest or advise these students to think about? 
I think one thing that USAC does well is that we offer a diversity of programs. It's not that we're just offering semester-long or year-long opportunities where you're going to study in a particular region of the world. I think one thing that we're good at is we also offer shorter programs as well. So for example, we offer several four-week summer sessions and something like that might be a good model for a non-traditionally aged student who's looking for a shorter experience so that they can still make progress towards their graduation, but not be abroad for such a long length of time. And I know that more and more universities across the United States, like Governor's State, they're offering their own short-term faculty-led programs. And sometimes these programs are as short as one and a half or two weeks. And something like that is a really good opportunity for some of these populations of students because it still, again, propels them forward in terms of their graduation date knocks off hopefully a requirement for their degree and gives them a taste of some of those benefits that I spoke about earlier. I think Amy is asking, how do we get this experience? (laughs) But aside from us, I imagine you have educators that are listening. We have parents that are listening. We have college students that are listening, high school students. What advice or what would you say to them if they're thinking about how do I have an abroad experience? Yeah. Well, first of all, go do it. I don't know how many people I've met throughout my 15 years of working international education who said to me, you know what? One of my biggest regrets during college is that I didn't study abroad. I'm really passionate about helping students make this a possibility. One of the best tips that I often give to folks is to start planning as early as possible. So let's say you're a student who's about to begin the fall semester at a new university. You're a first year student and you're about to navigate through your orientation programming. I strongly encourage you to attend a study abroad session, go to your international office or make that advising appointment either before week one or in week one, because this way, you'll know all of the steps through which you need to navigate. So you need to make sure you get your passport. You can identify scholarship opportunities and other funding options very, very far in advance. You can figure out which location and which program is going to best align with your goals. You can figure out if you want to do more than one program. You need to determine if you want to go summer, fall, winter, or spring. And then perhaps, like you just mentioned, perhaps you can figure out how to make it possible for your family members to visit while you do study abroad. And the good thing is, in the context of universities, you have so many layers of support. So, Uh of, of course, a good starting point is your international office. If you pick an organization like USAC, we have program advisors who will help you navigate through those steps. And then, like I said before, I think on top of this, we need to think about the ways that other dimensions of our identity intersect with a study abroad experience. So for example, if you're a queer student, what other resources and support can you get from an LGBTQ plus resource center on your campus? Or similarly, if you're a student with disabilities, what can your office on campus offer in, in, in the form of support? So it's, I think it's important to think about that as well. 
Yeah, I think that's really important. It reminds me of going to the orientations with my son and my daughter. They both had to do like six different orientations prior to travel to really set them up. And I think for my son, he had some reservations, you know, will people look like me? How, how will people react to me? My daughter was, I don't know the language. There's this sense of insecurity as you start to prepare. So those orientations, the more information you know, the better. So this is great information. I would definitely recommend it to anyone that can participate. Because for me, it helped me become a lifelong learner. Having host students, I know it was a great experience for them, but it was even a greater experience for me and my family to have them in our home and to learn about their culture. And since then, I've visited Columbia to go see one of my host students. So you develop these relationships. So it's not just about the relationships of the people that you go with. It's also opportunities to form relationships with people in other countries. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think a lot about this in terms of building bridges, right? And I think that educators like you and me have such an important role to play in terms of designing and delivering impactful programs for our student populations. Well, we are talking to Dr. Jeremy Doty about international study abroad programs and his research on the educators and the students who've been involved in these programs. I'm interested in branching off what Joy was saying. What if someone is interested in being involved, but they aren't necessarily at a university, they might not want to go on a study abroad trip, what can they do? So the great thing about global education opportunities is that it cuts across all different levels, right? And I think one of the exciting things about global education in a post-COVID world is we've learned a lot. I've always been a firm believer that crisis births opportunity. And in this kind of quiet time when people haven't been able to travel abroad, I think we've thought of innovative programs that can cater to populations just like you're referring to. So one thing that I always like to remind individuals about is that global opportunities don't have to be abroad. Think about your own community, look in your own backyard. There are so many ways to engage with diverse others who come from really rich, interesting backgrounds right in your own communities. I remember when I was working at a university in Wisconsin, one of the student organizations with which I worked developed a very strong connection with the Somali immigrant community in Green Bay. And I think that serves as such an interesting point of departure for students to learn about the world. And I also think that something like that serves as a great source of inspiration for taking it a bit further and then taking that trip abroad. You know, in addition to something like that, there are other non-credit opportunities that people can engage with. We're starting to see more and more kind of service-oriented programs where you can engage with local communities abroad, just as an adult learner or as a young learner. I know GAP programs, which are very popular here in Europe, 
are becoming increasingly popular in the United States. And we're even starting to see more domestic study programs as well, because again, the United States is such a diverse country that students don't even have to leave to the United States to have a global experience. That is so important that you have said this about our own backyards. Sometimes we overlook those spaces when we're trying to look too far away at another country. And yes, we we have a lot of diversity ourselves. I have just really one more question. We've talked about the educator's experience and you've mentioned some things that students have said now you've conducted a study that explores experiences of students studying abroad. What is it they are saying about their experiences? Yes, a second study that I'm conducting with Dr. Alyssa Nada, who's the president and CEO of USAC, is a phenomenological study that explores the experiences of students who studied abroad during COVID. This hasn't been studied before, So we wanted to get a better sense of the meaning that they gave to a study abroad experience during the spring 2021 semester, a a semester really impacted by COVID. So we worked with eight different students. We had them throughout their semester abroad author five different journal entries. And then we've just wrapped up one-on-one interviews with each student. So although we're still navigating through some of the data, I'd be very happy to share some of our initial findings. What we found from these students is despite the challenges of studying abroad during a pandemic, the risks, and even some of the disappointments, because some of their courses were all online, just like in the US, they really felt like study abroad was worth it. It was a worthwhile experience. In fact, for some of the participants, they viewed that studying abroad during COVID was an escape from the chaos that COVID caused in the United States. Because as you know, not only is there an incredible divide right now politically, but that divide is starting to trickle down into things like, should I get vaccinated? Do I still have to wear a face covering or a mask? And our participants said, no, I need to get away from this. And they studied abroad because they were searching for a sense of normalcy. And what happened, interestingly, is their study abroad experience ended up enhancing their mental wellness because they did have this sense of normalcy where many of them could do in-person classes. They were studying in collectivist societies where people put the health of um, the country over individual health. So many individuals in the countries where they were studying got double vaccinated and wore masks without issue. So it's been absolutely fascinating to hear some of these narratives. And Dr. Nada and I are really excited to continue analyzing the data. Oh, that's, we're excited about that as well. So we can't wait until you finish that product. Thank you. Yes, I'm looking forward to student voices, educator voices, and knowing where those two meet. I have learned so much about the experiences and the benefits of staying abroad. Do you have any last tips that you would like to share with our listeners, knowing that educators from K-20 could be listening to us today? Yeah, that's a good question. I think one thing that I want to end with is that not all study abroad or global education opportunities are 
created equal. I think it really depends on the quality of a particular program. So for those of us who do play a role in advising students on these programs or even building um, these programs ourselves, I just wanted to end with a few, I think, practical resources for you to explore. So the first one is there's an organization called the Forum on Education Abroad. So it's one of the key professional organizations in the field of international education. They've got great resources for you that you can use as a point of departure. And then there's also NAFSA, which is the Association of International Educators. I think that's a great place to start. There are some frameworks that I like to use just because they align with my philosophy of education. I really like something called the fair trade learning construct, which really prioritizes reciprocity and amplifying community voices. So if you're curious to learn more about that, just hop on Campus Compact's website and they've got open access resources through their community-based global learning collaborative. And then there's two researchers that I want to highlight because their work has really impacted me. So Tanya Mitchell has done some really important work on critical service learning, which pushes educators to facilitate conversations on, it, on issues of identity, power, and privilege. And then there's Aurora Santiago Ortiz, and she has recently started arguing for a decolonized approach to inform university school community partnerships. And I think both of those are the, the critical service learning and the decolonized approach to education abroad or service learning. Both of those come through a critical lens. So they're really kind of questioning things like one and done volunteerism trips that simply offer a sense of wanderlust to individuals. So they're, they're pushing us as educators to really commit to new ways of thinking, being, engaging, and interacting with community members, which I think is really important. Thank you for these resources. We appreciate you being with us today. I'm hoping to have another conversation with you about these published manuscripts when they are ready. Absolutely. I had a blast. Thanks again. I had um, so much fun chatting with you today. Thank you. This was very informative. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy. And Dr. Joy.